Welcome Digital Wildcatters to BDE Today. Special guest today co-hosting, Mark Meyer. Mark, welcome in. Thanks for having me back. You know, uh, I've used this joke way too often because this is your second time to co-host BDE. Sequels suck. <laughs> they just always do. <laughs> oh, Maverick was pretty good. Maverick was pretty good. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. And uh, in all seriousness, Colin's not with us today because Julie's grandfather passed away and they're at the funeral and uh, the the word is that it was his time, lived an amazing life, was a ama- uh, major general in the Air Force. So anyway, thoughts and prayers with Julie Absolutely. and Colin as they travel down there. So Absolutely. All right. Issue number one. We were texting last night trying to figure out what we were going to talk about. And I thought you had a really good take on what we'll call live. I think that's how you pronounce it. LIV. LIV, Roman numeral LIV. The, yeah, the, the new golf deal. And at first when you started texting about it, I thought you were just, we're going to have a sports show. So I was like ready to, <laughs> to do it. But no, you've got a good take on it. Throw it at us. Well, beyond the fact that I am left-handed like Mickelson, um, this is really an intersection of, you know, high profile, really debate and, and fairly contentious issue as it relates to Mickelson and others who have chosen to go over to the the LIV, which is, I think, as most people know, is this new Saudi-sponsored golf tour. And so it brings up an intersection with the energy conversation, a really interesting time as the administration goes to Saudi Arabia to, for another round of discussions about oil prices. And we see almost a kind of a TMZ-like, situation here. So celebrity high profile, there are uh, moral conundrums or moral hazards all over the place. This just happens to be the latest one. And as it relates to all of our supply of raw materials, oil, minerals, even finished product from places that have, let's say, some unsavory human rights practices, for example. Of course, we have the history with Saudi with 9-11, We've got Khashoggi, which I think has been really the focal point of the dust up here uh, with respect to the criticism of, of Mickelson, who is a controversial figure on his own. But it really brings up a larger issue about as we go into the future of transition where we're taking on more and more complexity in our energy solutions and quest for energy security, we're going to be faced increasingly with these type of uh, moral dilemmas, if you will, because a lot of this stuff is produced and imported from places that, you know, have uh, have regimes that don't align with our values and, and our core beliefs. Yeah, no, I mean, you've got kids, uh, single mothers out in the middle of nowhere mining things under horrific conditions. You go start talking solar. I mean, I think China slave labor touches 99% of of the ingredients that go into solar panels. They may be assembled in different countries, but at the end of the day, right. to get the, the, the raw materials out of there. And so, you know, it's hard because, I mean, we have had an amazing standard of living in the United States, you know, kind of for a long time because of cheap Saudi oil. I mean, we made, we made that deal with the devil a long time ago. I almost jumped into the debate. There was a baseball writer who actually popped off about this yesterday, a guy named John Heyman, um, who tends to be a little uh, snarky. And it was basically uh, 
really vocally supporting something Rick Riley, who was a well-known sports writer, had written really just taking Mickelson and Greg Norman, who's the CEO of the LIV, to task. And the thought is, look, we've got, and as we sit here with plastic water bottles, and I drove a pretty good distance to get here, uh, we've all benefited in one way or another over many years, many decades, at least since the war came online in the 1950s from the derivatives of what Saudi and other foreign oil has has meant to the, the American economy and the American consumer. So, yeah, we are going to, and I don't, I mean, is there a good solution on how we navigated? I mean, when do we have, so, so I don't know that I support this. I don't, I haven't taken a position yet, um, but I mean, banning Russian oil because of invading Ukraine. Okay, I could at least understand the moral outrage and why we do that. Um, potentially, we're also weakening a geopolitical enemy. But okay, maybe that. Do we also, you know, not take oil from Libya because they blew up? What was the? I think three oh flight three oh three. I mean, how are we going to navigate that? Do you have any thoughts? Because I don't know that I have it's, any good ones. It's a political solution. I don't. It, it's it's not been resolved yet, and I I don't think there is a, a kind of a clean and simple, certainly not a simple one, um, to get to a resolution anytime soon. These issues are going to continue to come up. Yeah, and, and it just pointed out because it, it it did intersect with you know the the very high profile and very front page. Uh, discussion going on around what's going on with oil prices and the economy, and um, and it, it also touches a, a lot of the West, and so um, these are these are issues we're going to have to continue to to address and, re and try and resolve. Yeah, and I think the other thing it does is, you know, as we sit here with our standard of living in the United States, and folks in Africa want to achieve that. You know, oh, it's so wrong for Mickelson to go do this. Well, you know, the folks in Africa are sitting there going, and hey, what are you guys doing? And so, you know, you, you see a sliding scale on outrage in the United States based on money. If it's 200 million, it's bad. But if it's a buck 50 gasoline for my lifetime, maybe it's not so bad. It, it, it all just gets bogged down in kind of a whataboutism uh, back right. and forth. And so um, let's talk about one of your tweets. Yeah, so so and, and more importantly, let's talk about your tweet. I I had seen the Biden quote where he was sitting there going, you know, Exxon makes more money than God. And I heard last night a comedian say, "I didn't think God had money." Every time I see God, he's in a robe and he doesn't have any pockets. So, so I didn't think God needed money, but um, you know, and I just pointed out the federal government's like thirteen times the the revenue about. And what I liked, so I was kind of being snarky on that i actually like your tweet and i'll throw your tweet up here while you talk about your tweet because i think it's really good stuff well i i just pointed out the simple fact and, and this is about the implication was exxon made made more money than god which to me is what's their profitability not necessarily what is the the top line revenue which is is large um apples is larger and so just comparing big tech and and big oil and pick the top in, in big tech from Microsoft, Meta, Google, and, uh, and Apple. Most of their net income margins for the last 12 months are in the uh, low 30s to high 20s. 
the highest among the big four, and we were talking about this earlier, Chevron, Exxon, uh, Shell, and BP. I, a little hesitation about BP. It, it still shocks me that Conoco is bigger than, than BP now, but they are. Um, the best among those four is 11.6 in, in Chevron. So it really points out the, 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 the stark difference between those who participate in a market in which they have little to no pricing power in those that have a market dominant market dominance position at which they can set prices. The majors, the super majors combined produce about 10% of global oil production. Using an anecdote or a, a data point about the US smartphone market, Apple and Samsung control 78% with Apple at 56%. And so there is a real stark contrast between uh, when you look at the simple profitability, if that's what we're going to talk about, who made more than whom, then we need to focus on what the net income margin is and, and what the implications are for companies that are setting versus taking prices. Because if you look back, we're using last 12 months numbers on the big four oil guys. So, okay, maybe you know, going forward, it's going to be higher, but I've seen estimates that maybe margins go from 10% to like 12% or 13%, which is right around where the S&P 500 as a whole is. Well, think about the integrated business model. You've got great upstream margins that are being somewhat eroded by inflation. And then you have the downstream business, which is paying elevated prices for feedstock along with chemicals. So it, it, it's, a, it's a bit of a, you know, of a squeeze in some part of the business uh, I saw something the other day. I can't remember. There, there was actually a, a, a point made about the pure retail providers that have actually seen a slight erosion in their margins as prices have gone up uh, on, at a retail level. Part of it was uh, citing the fact that people are less inclined to come into the convenience store and actually buy products. I knew from a long time ago, it was, it was a bit of an amusing thing for me to discover when I covered Murphy for a, a brief period of time. They had a downstream and retail and marketing uh, segment. And I learned that Murphy, I think at the time, made about 50% of their retail margins from the sale of cigarettes alone. Really? Yeah. So I have the podcast I dropped tomorrow is with Jane Stricker, and she's a guru of energy transactions. Uh, transition now at the Greater Houston Partnership, but she started her career at BP and was there 20 years. She started in retail in Baltimore. She ran convenience stores for uh, for BP. And I asked her this fact. I said, is it true that about a third of your inventory is stolen? <laughs> and, and she laughed and basically agreed, though, that that was a significant component. I mean, one of the things that I'm sure there's a tight correlation with is economic troubles, thievery out of, uh, out of convenience stores. And so it wouldn't surprise me if, if part of that margin erosion just flat out theft. Right. You know? And so it's, it's kind of a real thing. Before we leave this point though, you and I get this. I mean, the echo chamber gets this. Is there any way to turn this narrative? And I say this with love, could we convince someone like my dear sweet mother, hey, mom, you're really not price gouging when your net income margin 
is about the same as every other company in the S&P 500. And oh, by the way, look at these guys. That's way, way higher. Sticking with the golf theme, that is a very difficult up and downhill three break 50 foot putt yeah. in a major championship. So um, unless you work it into the uh, popular culture in, in some format or some voice, you know, there's, there's just no, the, this, this um, again, using the term, what about ism is not going to work uh, yeah. as it relates to, you know, the, the focus on, on big oil and, and the blame game, particularly in another election year. Yeah. Right? And, no. and we, we'll, we'll talk about something else internationally that's got a bit of the same hallmarks. So, yeah, I know it's, I've been trying to think of a way to, how do we convert that into a TikTok video? And it's just hard. <laughs> Margins, margin. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't have the song yet on that one. Yeah, here's the pie that I get, and then here's all the pieces that I have to share, and this yes. is what's left over. <laughs> yeah, I know. All right, let's move on to electric vehicles. We've had a little bit of news there, and this uh, we talked three weeks ago, I think, on BDE. Colin and I did just about trouble with the electric vehicle companies. So da 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 da. We've had the first. Uh, announcement of a chapter seven. We so, had to remind ourselves that chapter seven was an actual li- liquidation. I know exactly. Oil and gas That's company. The That's the end. Yeah, oil and gas company. Now nah, we just need to reset our options right. for management. We, you know, that's that's traditional energy. Um, so Electric Last Mile, their uh, electric van company, announced they're going to go chapter seven. I mean, this is kind of disturbing trend. You had particularly with the SPAC market, you had a lot of company EV companies go public and they all seem to be investigated by the feds for in effect, you know, exaggerating maybe the, uh, the advancements of their technology. So you had Nikolai, I think they wound up settling with the sec for $125 million. You had Lordstown, you had a lucid group. So not a good look for EVs. Well, look, I think uh, I think we're still in the uh, high rate of change in the innovation phase, and we've got another anecdote. I think Brian Sullivan tweeted out about uh, a friend who has an F one fifty Lightning who was pulling a trailer, and lo and behold, lost fifty percent of range Ooh, pulling a bad. trailer. If you're a pickup owner, more or less, you're you're looking to pull a trailer, at least some significant portion of that population is looking to be able to pull a trailer. And so um, there's a long way to go in terms of the, the kind of no return substitution. But I do think that, you know, we're going to continue to see things emerge. And th- this is just kind of a natural yeah. Dar- Darwinian process, right? In, in all new technology and innovation. Yeah, there's still really cool cars. I will say that I drove Tesla for six years and it was an awesome car. My kids still gripe that uh, I got rid of it. One, one thing I've seen, in, and they've taken on a fairly high-profile cast of, of pitch people, is Hyundai has really gone strong with their hybrid SUV. And it actually looks reasonably aesthetically pleasing. Well, right? So I do not drive an electric car right now i drive a g80 and uh that's the genesis 
And if you read all the reviews about that car, they always say they hired the guy from Bentley to design it. They buy their leather from the same place Bentley. It's an amazing car, blah, blah, blah. The last line is always you just have to get over the, more, the mental hurdle of your driving a Hyundai. But I will give them uh, props because I like my car. So anyway, so that's electric vehicle world. You, you pointed out something when we were texting last night, figuring out uh, what to talk about about Petrobras. So give us the Petrobras story and I'm going to throw up the stock price while you're uh, while you're talking about just what's kind of happened year to date. And wh what we did is we ran Petrobras against uh, basically the New York Stock Exchange oil index as kind of the proxy. Just, just looking, you know, in, in kind of personal account and trading, we're, we're some we're some cheap kind of oil levered names of, of significant size after everything's run so much. And I was talking to a friend of mine who used to be in the equity business as well. And uh, he's, he's been on Petrobras for quite a while. And I, I put it away for several weeks. Then I went and looked at it earlier this week and I thought, wow, after all this run, the dividend yield is still at you know, high twenties, 26%. I think the last time I looked, what's, you know, what's going on? Look, I know Petrobras has a checkered history from the car wash scandal days, but that's, eons ago and current thinking and you know what's going on there. Well, if you dig in a little bit more, uh, May 23rd, I believe, was the date they announced their fourth CEO in two years. Or, yeah, a fourth CEO in two years, maybe four years. Anyway, they've had three, like, in the last five months. And when you put that against the, the backdrop of a President Bolsonaro who's facing re-election in October and there's growing populist uprising about what's going on with fuel prices and Petrobras's policy or pricing schemes and ability to keep a lid on prices, it creates a lot of, of pressure. And so, you know, the, the nationalization, as we think about at risk, I think is something, again, talking to my buddy and asking him questions about, hey, what's going on? Why is, you know, why is Petrobras not performing as people rotate into different things that they're looking for value and performance potential it's Western Hemisphere oil reserves, right? It's uh, large scale. Nice place to visit. I Capitalization see <laughs> is, you know, it's pretty liquid. So what's going on here? And he, he pointed me really toward the saga that I had not really been paying attention to. Um, so just another. No, that's wild because it's down. I think we had the graph up 4% year to date and rest of energy's up, call it 25. You, know, so. you, you either, you, you either, you either change out your CEO on a, on a six monthly basis or, you know, you, you do another SPR release, I guess, but yeah. th this is a real um, political hot button or third rail that, you know, we're, we're seeing, uh, we're seeing pretty meaningful political responses in the, in the markets pricing and risk. Yeah, no, that's pretty wild. So from the camp, Harold going to Harold, <laughs> we got an <laughs> announcement this morning that, Harold Hamm wants to take uh, Continental Private. I think he put what four point five billion dollars on the uh, on the table to do it. And what say you, Mark? The seventeen percent he doesn't own, um, yeah. which I think is unique. This is not something that hasn't been talked about for quite a while. I saw a tweet this morning from Energy Cynic, I believe, who said. Um, has a tendency to bet the farm at market inflection prices. I think that was in reference to the. Uh, Unfortunately, time unwind of hedges from a few years back. So, you know, we'll see how all that 
uh, works if it is a, an inflection point signal. I'd be more curious from a private equity guy's perspective. You know, we've, we've long talked about when public valuation frustration builds among management teams and boards, well, we'll just, you know, we're, we're just going to, uh, we're going to investigate the take private Avenue. What's, what's your take there? I mean, 80, th- this is a unique situation. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, you and I were talking about this this morning and you, I think you asked the best question about it. It's like, who puts up the money? Right. Um, Cause I mean, that's the one thing we've seen um, is that, there is no private equity. I mean, Carnelian, to their credit, just raised a $975 million fund. So kudos to Ackerman, but he's definitely the unicorn out there. I think uh, Billy Quinn and Pearl will get their, ra- get their raise done as well. I don't have any great insight there, but I'm, I think they will. But, you know, it's smaller, niche kind of private equity that's getting raised. The big mega funds are just all dead. All the New York firms have said no. So one... I don't know who will uh, who will put up the equity too, and let's say Harold decides to to just lever it more. I haven't looked at uh, Continental's balance sheet, but when you go through and start talking about debt, it's debt debt is tainted with uh, with the green problem as well. Right. So figuring out where the money is going to come from, but we got to do this to our our good friend <laughs> uh, Robert Hefner, who we'll, let's pull up his tweet. So there he is from 2020. Harold is slowly taking his company private. Wall Street punishes upstream because of climate alarm, blah, blah, blah. So there you go. The thing I tweeted back when they were talking about it, you know, what happens to the Bakken if he runs more rigs? If they're Harold Harold runs it, whether it's private or public, the same way. I don't don't really. Harold's going to go Harold. So, but uh, it is interesting to see that. One of the, the last kind of point is, to your, what you were talking about, all the boards saying, let's just take it private. I think there have only been two take privates in the inner, in oil and gas in my career, you know, and both of them were done by Doug Miller and uh, Doug's unique character, but those, those were two unique situations. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, now we kind of need to spike the football just a little bit. <laughs> Because you last time you were on, we talked about this very topic that the EU, their economy and environmental committee, which was coming up uh, with the grand plan to save the world with transition, was talking about adding natural gas and nuclear as environmental friendly or whatever the designation is. They actually voted today or this weekend. No. And so I'm going to pop up just a, a tweet because uh, John Anger tweeted it out. But, yeah, they voted no. Now, that doesn't make it official. It's got to go to the whole parliament of the EU. But And we don't have the tweet, but I, I saw it. I think Doomberg retweeted it and commented on, the, on it this morning and was further portending the, the ultimate demise of the EU itself. Um, but we're spending time on classification and taxonomy issues at a time where you know, we, we, actions over words are probably a better, a better investment of time and, and, and energy. But um, this is a big deal from the standpoint of, I think, ultimate EU unity on how this crisis is going to get solved. 
Well, and, you know, Pickering co-hosted BDE with me a while ago. I want to even say it was October, maybe even November. And one of the things we were talking about was, the, and this was pre-war, pre-invasion by, by Putin of Ukraine, but we were talking about how through the winter with the energy crisis going on, EU leadership was going to have to make the decision, do we save people and heat houses or do, and to do so, we have to turn off manufacturing uh, and various other economic engines. And so we have, on BDE, pointed out numerous times, they shut down this fertilizer plant. They shut down this um, thing. It's, I could see e, the, the European Union, some people saying, hey, man, we want a life. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we, don't, we don't have our castles. So, yeah. It's uh, it's going to continue to be a big issue, and we'll watch it. A little surprise because, and again, I'm not European. I'm I'm not in one of the countries or represented by those on the the committee that oppose allowing nuclear and, and natural gas as viable green alternatives as we navigate this transition. But it's uh. It's it's pretty stark example of where we are politically. Yeah, no, it's an that uh, reminds me of the the joke from junior high when you drink a lot of water and uh, you're heading towards the bathroom. What are you European? <laughs> so, <laughs> all right, we got some EMP M and A news. Um, Devon actually bought Rimrock up in the Bakken, eight hundred and sixty five million dollar deal. Got a little bit of insight. Um, from some folks that looked at that deal, the the nameplate is we're paying 2.2 times cash flow. Well, Rimrock had been drilling a bunch, so this was some flush production. So it's a little bit of a misnomer. So I heard where it shook out was actually a fair valuation to even semi kind of aggressive. So I don't know what that means, but I'm thinking it means kind of PDP, PV10, PV12. And then there was some upside kind of given for uh, for locations. And the press release talks about we got 100 drilling locations. And so I don't want to say this is the the thawing of the M&A market. And we're actually <laughs> going to see some action here. But the way Devin did it is 2.2 times cash flow. And they said because of this deal, we can increase our dividend 13% this year. And so I think if we're going to see those type opportunities happen, it's going to be under that narrative. Yeah, I wasn't really paying attention to this one. I was a little surprised at the scale-up uh, pro forma in terms of what it means for acreage and production. So yeah, it's the what the the other thing I heard is, and again, it's kind of like talking about Harold. This is unique. Uh, Rimrock and Devon basically sit on top of each sure. other. So they're probably things that the folks I knew that were taking a look at the deal had no idea about sharing infrastructure, you know, being able to drill some long laterals at certain points. And that, they're very familiar with the neighborhood. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and I've always said when someone, when the neighbor wins the trans, a competitive process, it's usually a good buy because they know it better than than uh, than other people. So that was interesting. The other thing I, that I, I'll just mention long term history. I I covered Devon for a long time, and they always kept you off balance with how quickly and how 
seemingly purely tactically they acted where there was a real longer term strategic uh, objective and they they've been pretty good at it for a long time so yeah yeah no, they, kudos to getting something done and hopefully it is the thawing yeah because um, there's a lot more to be done yeah colin and i talked about this probably a month or two ago on bde just that i had heard from some of the m a guys at the bigger shops the effect of you know what we're just gonna go start buying stuff because debt is still really cheap we're at less than one times levered we're gonna kick ourselves five years from now if we don't accumulate this and we'll just take our chances with the stock price and hope in the long run it sorts itself out. And I'd even heard there'd kind of been a locking of arms of all the big guys saying, let's just go do this. And yeah. if we get, but so I don't know that this is a thawing of that, but it is. The other deal that popped up was just BP basically got out of the oil sands up in Canada. Right. Perfect sense. Yeah. I mean, it's wholly consistent with the really the, the active transition of the core business that they've said about they've they've taken the most progressive path if you will with respect to actually investing to develop scale businesses in wind and solar and ramping down in areas of conventional and i think because of the uh a lot of the the parameters around oil sands this is you know this is consistent from a messaging standpoint um our good friend Arjun Murthy has been arguing in his Substack for quite a while. Look, we've got no better partner to uh, address the energy security issue, not only for North America, but for you know our friends on both you know on across both oceans than you know to to better support development of Canadian reserves as well as U.S. domestic reserves because the environmental uh, footprint, if you will, or the environmental practices are some of the best in the world. Yeah. it's uh, So I'll give another plug for the podcast I'm dropping tomorrow with Jane Stricker. Long time, 20 years at BP. She was actually in charge of compliance with their settlement with the government over Macondo. Uh, Macondo. And it was... It was interesting stuff. I mean, they literally had to send somebody to pee in a cup in New Orleans, you know, because they were on probation. Um, but it was fascinating. I mean, it was thousands of pages of documents that they had to produce to show, and they never tripped it up. They, they really took it seriously. So it's interesting. So one other note I'll just throw in while we're here, because this has kind of been a running discussion too, is I've always said that energy gets money back when a CIO can become a former CIO because they don't have exposure to energy. You know, your principles can only carry you so far. And ultimately, I think the back of the envelope metric that, because everybody to some degree is graded against an index, and S&P 500 is as good a proxy as anything. Energy uh, ticked over 5% of the S&P 500 over the last week. So we is got that, that going for us. Numerator expansion or denominator shrinkage? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, what is what is 100 basis points in energy weighting relative to? I, I know the S and P total value is is a bit of a moving target, but it's got to be plus or minus 30 trillion, something like that. So, 100 basis points is a big number in energy weighting. 
yeah. whether that's all new equity coming in or kind of the relative movement in the numerator and denominator, that weighting uh, conversation. You know, the issue in energy is that there's just not that many large pipes to go into, right? Yeah. I mean, you got Apple sitting there at what, two and a half, three trillion dollars. It's yeah. multiples of the top four combined on the integrated side, yeah. right? So to the extent that, you know, we get to an inflection point in rotation and Pickering's been talking about this quite a bit, uh, you know, looking for signs of that is where, where does, where does scale capital have to go? It's got to find the bigger pipes. Yeah. No. And, and, and then you get into the whole issue of we're going to do 20 and 30 year assets when Carrie says we're not going to use any of this stuff after 2030, you know? And so it, it does make scaling up those big projects to some degree, a management team, a board of directors is going to say, nah, this bad stuff's not going to happen that we're talking about on the I, political front. So I remember and none of this was in our field of vision back in 2014, early 2015. I remember right after I'd, come back to the cell side, joined TPH. I was talking to my co-head of research and in the aftermath of the 2014 Thanksgiving surprise and what was going on with the stocks and, you know, a big reset, what is the next rally or recovery look like? And we both agreed that it's going to, it's going to be much narrower. And that's really certainly didn't contemplate it taking seven years, but that's <laughs> indeed what it took. But, um, we do have a much narrower investment set or universe within each of the traditional subsectors, right? And so how does that look when energy goes from five to 10 plus here in the next few years if, you know, we don't have another thing that reverses course here? Yeah, and there's, it's a lot more, you know, we used to deflect on the, Investors ask us, well, what do you think about, you know, the odds of recession? Well, you don't know. We're not macroeconomists. Right. Ask me That's the in this context chairman. of non-recession, what, right. what do we think about oil and gas prices? And I'll tell you what I think about the stocks. But now we've got a lot of other unprecedented things coming out of a pandemic. We've got ESG. We've got all these political cross crosswinds. We have um, serious tension between us and, you know, places like Russia and China. And so it's, and, you know, from an investor standpoint, what's my horizon and what's the appropriate terminal value and discount? It's, it's all way more complex than I've, I've ever seen. Yeah. Brad Olson and I were talking about this and, you know, Brad makes the whole point that the number of rigs running actually ties closer to your trading multiple in the public market than it does historical oil and gas prices. We all think oil's high, a lot of people drill. Brad's like, nah, if you're getting rewarded at three times EBITDA, you don't, you're not being rewarded no, for generating right. more EBITDA. And I think he's right, and Brad's really smart. And so kind of the, the upshot of that, and let's take the Great Recession off the table because you're right, we're not the Fed Reserve Chairman. We have no idea. Um, not that he does either, but um, I think you're sitting at a point where you either have to see multiple expansion to encourage that drilling or conversely, prices just have to go double. 
And right. I, you know, I mean, it's it's one of the two things. So I think, I think where does five to ten go? I think it's probably multiple expansion or the commodity going up, depending on how we choose. Prices to, double. I'm probably opining a little more aggressively on my thoughts on a on a global recession. Oh, no doubt. I, I mean, it's, yeah. it goes without saying. Or yeah. It's patently obvious, but you know, I I, I don't know. It's uh, we talked about it a little bit on the energy draft. I had the luxury so you had the the least least smart guy go first um you know i think a marshall plan across north america particularly u.s and canada and if we could sort out sovereign issues and security and things in mexico there's a tremendous opportunity to be a dominant natural gas player not that we aren't already right but playing both offense and defense off of both coasts for, you know, taking care of issues like Europe has been confronted with, with Russian gas and, and on the heels of the Ukraine invasion, but also putting pressure on coal-fired generation. And, and Toby Rice has talked about this yeah. a lot in response to Elizabeth Warren's yeah. uh, kind of anti-natural gas campaign. Shenanigans. Right. Yes. <laughs> so it's... but. Back to the question, the, the the take private discussion. How, how does all that get financed, and and with any consistency and continuity, the the whipsaw of the volatility and the interest cycle, really just the the magnitude of the volatility and the peak to trough, just keeps capital off balance. Yeah, and I always hate to say I, I hate it when management teams would come into my office and go, "This time's different." I'm like, "No, it's not." But if there is a this time is different for the volatility of the industry is it feels like we have political headwinds that we've never had before. And that might shut it down. Yeah. So speaking of, <laughs> we had a group consensus. And this, this is morning. fresh, too. This was yesterday. This late. was yesterday. So finger of the week. Mark, sorry I didn't cut your face in on Colin. I did last time we uh, did this. Who the hell is Gina McCarthy, and why did we give her finger of the week? She is the National Climate Policy Advisor to the administration. And quite frankly, I hadn't really paid much attention to anyone in the political circles in the administration outside of John Kerry and what we've talked about previously in his, his pronouncements on natural gas. So... Um, there's a bit of a, I think, an, uh, kind of the, you know, the, the, making the debate more difficult or silencing debate uh, it was really a bit of a chilling message that came out yesterday. Because, so, I mean, cause back, you know, historically, it's like if you wanted to debate climate change and whether CO2 is actually causing temperature to rise the fact that you were censored if you did that right. if you if you if you said that but it does feel like she took another step I, I think plenty in the scientific community Stephen Coonan comes to mind you know very thoughtfully in an eminently qualified 
theoretical physicist, you know, has said, yes, there are influences that are caused by industrialization and emissions. So the, the evidence points to that. The questions around, I think that were primarily being addressed are now these difficult questions that are coming up politically around the cost and economics of some renewable technologies. And so the notion was that we start to label some of this inquiry as misinformation, therefore getting it deplatformed on some of the big tech and social media platforms, and that, which is a different thing. Yeah. You know, that that's, you know, the, 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 the immediate equivalency with uh, denialism, which is not what this is about. This is about thoughtful scientific debate and debating issues. Again, a common thread of all the things that we've been discussing here and have been discussing for many months now is it's it's really a a live dynamic process as we work through this but if if i'm not going to be able to ask objective questions and critique and analyze then you know what what what's next yeah no i mean we definitely need to be able to discuss trade-offs of good today, humanity, et cetera, versus future climate change, how we balance the two. And it gets scary. You know, you hate talking about COVID. I'm COVID out. But just, I mean, seeing how... See, Trudeau's got it for a third time. Really? (laughs) But, you know, just um, my dad would, the country doctor would still say, there's not a virus on the planet that once you survive, you don't have natural immunity to. But no, but just the, the whole not being able to have that thoughtful decision, uh, discussion on the way, because at the end of the day, if we spend 100 on this transition instead of spending 20, that 80 could have done a lot of good for a lot of people. And so, yeah, I mean, that's the finger of the week. The rational middle is where the debate conversation the resolving and the solving needs to take place it's just that as we were discussing earlier as well there's so much advocacy in the extremes i mean how how much of the u.s population adult population is actually on twitter it's actually a pretty small number but it it seems highly magnified and amplified because of the platform uh, culture if you will and it's actually which is prone to some pretty nasty stuff and it's actually way less than that because of all the bots, as uh, as uh, Elon Musk is pointing out, well, as he as he, as he backpedals out at, of the deal. If you look at what Digital Wildcatters did as a kickoff to zero, talk about that a little bit. I mean that that was very balanced. That was look, we we've got human flourishing, which is the core tenet of what Alex Epstein writes about and talks about. But we also have this notion of, and from someone who's looked at the data, we also have tipping points for other species. Yeah. Right? So, um, yeah, Cully Cavanus did an amazing job with that. And I, I tell everybody, I think that those 23 minutes should be required um, watching for every American because he does balance it and he balances it with an equation that we can all make trade-offs. With. And, and there's a lot of this that needs to find its way into, I know you guys have been talking about, needs to find its way into 
junior high and high school populations as well, uh, because there's a lot of energy illiteracy out there that's, that's going to compound the issue. Exactly. Yates children, you are cut off unless you go watch that 23 minutes of uh, Cully talking about the balance we need to do. Mark, thanks for coming in and doing BDE. Thanks for having me. Oh, absolutely. Um, Digital Wildcatters, like I mentioned twice before, but another gratuitous plug, drop in a podcast tomorrow with Jane Stricker, the energy transition guru of the Greater Houston Partnership. It's equal parts talking about uh, BP and being on probation and monitoring that, which was fascinating stuff to me. It's talking some transition stuff. And it's also a big, huge commercial for Houston uh, and why we're here. So anyway, uh, subscribe to BDE. We'll see you next Tuesday. Colin will be back. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Everybody do a rain.